0: Hello, and welcome to Undressing the Issue. I'm Julia. This is my podcast. Hello. So uh, I wanted to continue the conversation on commitment and barriers to commitment. Um, you've already heard me talk about some of these barriers and what we touched on was barriers that come along with the dating culture that currently exists with uh, the internet and access to different people and people being disposable, having um, basically not a whole lot of authenticity in that venue because you can really be whoever you want to be on the internet. That's part of the appeal for a lot of people. So what I wanted to talk about today that kind of strays from that is a different type of barrier to commitment. And what I'd like to touch on is internal barriers to commitment. What the heck are those? Well, we've talked about dynamics in meeting people, how we meet them, how we portray ourselves, Um, But I wanted to talk about what happens for us internally, meaning our emotions, our personalities, our own experiences, our interpretations of those experiences, and where those interpretations come from and how that gets in the way of commitment. So in a previous episode... I'll start off with this big barrier because I think it's such, it's such a pertinent topic when it comes to commitment. They're actually intertwined and related. But in a previous episode, I talked about attachment, attachment theory, attachment styles. Just to give you a quick refresh, um, what I touched on was how our attachment styles as adults in our relationships, romantic relationships included, how those styles are shaped by our earlier experiences in childhood and even later on. And I believe I also talked a little bit about how those styles can be further shaped or changed later on in life if we have specific experiences or traumas or things that happen to us. So if you remember, or if not, maybe you may wanna go back and give it another little listen. Um, We talked about four specific styles, secure attachment, anxious or preoccupied attachment, avoidant attachment, and dismissive attachment. So in secure attachment, we talked about how this is the healthiest form Well, by we, I mean I. I talked about it. Okay, correction. So I talked about how insecure attachment, um, I should say within secure, because that sounds like insecure, not in secure. Okay. (laughs) So within secure attachment, this is the healthiest form. So it's when people are able to connect and be open and vulnerable and share and basically experience emotional intimacy on that level and are also able to keep themselves safe and set healthy boundaries when they need to as well. So it's being able to have a healthy balance of allowing certain people in and being able to keep certain people at a distance if it is beneficial. We also talked about anxious or preoccupied attachment and we talked about how this is that attachment style where someone is almost constantly in a state of fear of abandonment um there's a lot of self-esteem stuff that plays into that and we're going to get into the self-esteem stuff because that's huge when it comes to commitment um but in the anxious style because of that fear of abandonment it's also going to impact the way somebody is able to commit or seeks evidence of their partner's commitment and their engagement, their involvement, their, you know, their that they're keeping their promise to stay and to not run away and to not be hurtful. So with the anxious attachment style commitment is, either awesome or it's terrifying. It's terrifying because there's still that fear, that unresolved fear that you could leave me at any time and that's gonna really hurt. Or it's, I don't really wanna get into this because I have this belief that I'm definitely going to be left. I'm definitely going to be abandoned. So I don't even want to begin to participate because I know I'm going to get hurt. And remember, fear is irrational. Even if there is no evidence to suggest that the person that me, if I'm anxious, anxiously attached, or if I have that kind of style, even if there's no evidence to suggest that my partner is going to leave me, because that has become this internalized belief of mine, I'm still going to constantly kind of sleep with one eye open and wonder and be scared and be suspicious and be, you know, engage in all sorts of behaviors to try to guarantee that this person doesn't leave me, to keep them around. Hang on, I got to take a sip of water. Hmm. Okay. So with the anxious attachment style, It can get in the way, obviously, can serve as a barrier because of that fear that, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be left behind in the dust and I'm going to be excluded or I'm someone's going to take their love for me away from me. Um, As far as the avoidance style, this one is interesting because this is where you see sort of like that commitment phobe type. Um, where they want the connection, they want the relationship, if you remember, and they also are apprehensive. They're a little bit gun-shy to allow anybody to get too close. They keep people at a distance. They um, sometimes will pull away if it's feeling too uncomfortably close. They like to sort of manage the space, the emotional space between themselves and their partners because of their discomfort with it getting too close. And that discomfort oftentimes lies in self-esteem stuff for them that they may not be worthy of really truly being loved. Or if the person got too close, that they would get to know them on such a deep level and start, and start seeing them differently and once that happens that'll be the end of that. So the avoidant attachment style is also going to have trouble with commitment because they're always going to kind of feel like they have one foot in one foot out. They could take it or leave it. And for their romantic partners that's really tough to deal with. and. I often use the analogy of the cookie in describing what this is like for the partner of an avoidant person. Basically, the partner of this avoidant person gets involved with them and they're like, oh, I love this person and they're awesome and I really wanna to get to know them and be close to them and spend time with them and talk to them and you know, really just accept them and embrace them and pour love all over them like it's freaking maple syrup on pancakes. And what they get is basically, they're seeing this person as this delicious, yummy cookie. It looks like it's gooey and warm, and it's just perfect, and they just want this cookie. It looks so good, I want the fucking cookie. But what they end up getting is, the cookie is sitting in front of them, and they can see it, and they want it, and their mouth is watering, but they're just getting crumbs. They get a little bit of a piece here and then they can't get the cookie for a while. And then they get another little crumb and it's enough. The crumbs are enough to keep them hanging on and hoping for more, but they're never able to actually get the whole cookie. And for people on the receiving end of that, for the one looking at this cookie and not able to eat it, it's this it's this never-ending chase. It's like, great, I got a crumb. Oh, that's so good. I want another bite. I want more. Why can't I just have the whole cookie? And what they find is that they're never able to get it. And those crumbs are so good in the moment, but it's just not enough. And for that person, it can really be depleting. It's exhausting to constantly be in a state of chasing after that next crumb and never actually being able to get the whole cookie. This is going to impact that person's self-esteem, their sense of really truly being committed to, that this person really loves them because again, they're sensing that one foot in, one foot out. The one foot in is the crumb they're getting the one foot out is the fact that they're never able to have the whole cookie and for some people it's not enough and it can destroy the relationship because it really doesn't feel connected it doesn't feel like commitment it doesn't feel like it's solid and stable and we can really trust this so It's really frequent for this reason with these barriers that you see people specifically with the anxious attachment style, partnering up with the avoidant attachment style. One is the pursuer. One is the distancer. It's an age old dynamic and it's super frustrating. It is really exhausting. It's also frequently unhealthy. I mean that's going to make you feel really shitty about yourself after a while. When you're constantly constantly chasing and hoping and getting your hopes up and then have them dashed and you're disappointed, it's it's going it, to it's going to leave a mark. That's going to that's going to hurt over time. It's really going to eat away at how you feel about yourself. Am I even worthy of getting the whole cookie? Am I worthy of really fully being loved? Am I not fully being loved because I don't deserve it? Did I do something wrong? That's where the self-blame comes in. And it's just this vicious cycle. And it's it's going to impact somebody's mental health, their self-esteem, their sense of safety in their relationship. So with the avoidance, the avoidance, it's it's interesting because they're avoidant not because necessarily they like to be pursued some of them find it smothering it's annoying it's very needy whatever else they want to call it but where it's coming from is fear for the avoidant basically they're scared that uh if they're truly open it's not going to be received well They're also scared that um, I also don't want to set the bar too high. Um, You know, if I start doing well with this, then it's going to be expected. And that's just a whole hell of a lot of pressure. We don't want to do that. Fear of success. Oh, no. Um, But with avoidance, it's, it's complex because it's also not only based in fear, but it's also often based in trauma. Somewhere down the road... They had a bad experience, meaning they either had somebody who pushed them to be too open and was really intrusive with them. And it felt kind of like a violation of their boundaries, their privacy, their psyche, or they had somebody who never really modeled for them what it's like to be fully open and be accepted and be loved and... Maybe they were in a position where they had to be a caregiver to a parent versus having a parent really provide care for them and make them feel seen, cared for, loved, important. Whatever the case may be, they have had some type of wounding or trauma around that openness. So this fear is around this precedent that's been set of them not feeling safe To be fully open, which is why they distance. And for a partner who, a romantic partner who sees them, you know, through rose colored glasses, I think you're great though. I would never do that. It's just not reassuring enough. And for avoidance to become more open and to shift this behavior. What I have to tell my clients frequently, especially the ones who are in relationships with avoidant people, is that it is workable. You can make improvements. An avoidant person can learn to establish safety and open up more and be more vulnerable and more communicative, but it takes time. It takes a very long time. And it's a slow moving process and it can feel painfully slow at times or it can feel like we're not making any progress at all because it's just so marginal. So I think that that is an important component that needs to be discussed when we're talking about barriers to commitment is our attachment styles, where that comes from. So one of the things I've just talked about a lot, which is the second barrier I want to touch on is self-esteem. Self-esteem is a huge one, and it's one that drives our attachment styles as well. Now, self-esteem is not just like, I look fat in these jeans. It's often born out of, um, again, trauma, people putting you down, maybe a history of bullying, maybe um, some messaging that you've received from your environment, your community, your society, that there's something wrong with you. You're not good enough. You're flawed, whatever else. And you've really taken to believing this as fact. And so you feel like you're not worthy. You also feel like you are never going to fully be able to be truly loved because of that, because there's something wrong with you. And so this self-esteem issue, this I'm not good enough, um, I'm not worthy, there's something wrong with me, is definitely going to show up in a relationship. It's all of these types of deeply seated insecurities that tend to come up in relationships. Relationships, side note, are basically mirrors. They are mirrors. They show us where we're at with ourselves and if you're not good with yourself meaning you've got these self-esteem issues you've got these self-worth issues and it's fine when you're alone because they're not really challenged nobody's pushing that nerve but when you're in a relationship and you have those fears of losing this person that you like or being abandoned or that they're going to judge you harshly that they're gonna reject you, that's where all of a sudden, all of this stuff from your past around your self-esteem and self-worth is gonna come right to the forefront. And for many people, it becomes palpable and it can really be damaging. It can wreak havoc on relationships. And this is where also, when people don't work through this self-esteem stuff, they start seeing similar patterns in their relationships. Somehow they're sabotaging, Or they're driving people away or they're, um, getting involved with people who are not good matches for them, who mistreat them or are just uh, somehow have their own issues that they're somehow, um, kind of hurt in their own way. They have their own wounds. So it tends to play out in this way. And this just perpetuates this cycle of, you know, all of those messages and and those experiences that keep the person feeling less than or not worthy. So the self-esteem thing is huge. And you also have to remember that in a relationship, you know, it's not just we spend time together and it's enjoyable. There's also this, sense of wanting to feel desired, wanted, loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be, I want to be fully seen and understood and known. And if you are scared of showing this person all of you, because you don't like all of you, then obviously this is gonna get in the way of your relationship. You're always going to be holding back giving crumbs if you will so self-esteem is a huge one it's it's enormous and we tend to play this out in relationships all of us do it every single one of us we repeat patterns we repeat wounds we repeat traumas we all do this so Self-esteem is also, as you've probably noticed by now, I hope you have, all of these things are intertwined. Self-esteem is completely intertwined with attachment styles. Attachment styles are also completely intertwined with trauma and family of origin stuff and early childhood experiences. It's all connected. All of it is connected and so, it ends up impacting our relationships, our sense of identity, our sexuality and our expression of our sexuality. It's all connected. It's all basically one and the same, how it's shaped, how it manifests. So, yes, I talk about these topics a lot. I'm kind of a broken record when it comes to attachment, trauma, self-esteem because it's something that's so prevalent for everybody. And by trauma, I wanna be clear, I don't just mean big T trauma, like just obvious abuse, assault. You know, we're not just talking about molestation or rape or being beaten or physically abused. We're also talking about small T traumas. Meaning those those emotional wounds, the not being um, not being cared for in the way that you needed to be when you were a child, not being um, kept safe, not being. Uh, loved, not being shown how to manage your emotions, not being taught resiliency and self-regulation, not being taught communication, you know, all of those things do result in small T traumas. And the research shows that with enough small T traumas, the effect on that person's development and on their relationships and mental health later on in life, the effect is going to be the same as a big T trauma. So this literally alters your brain as a child when you're developing, if you're constantly experiencing traumas of any kind, it's going to affect the way your brain develops and functions and how you approach different situations because your your startle response, your cortisone levels, your defaults are adjusted when you constantly have to be in a survival state. So that brings me to number three of our barriers, which is trauma. Yay, trauma. So trauma is absolutely going to affect your ability to commit. If you've been cheated on, lied to, if you've been ghosted, which is basically abandonment and it is abusive, do not ghost people. Okay, there's my disclaimer. Um, You're gonna have trust issues. If you've been put into situations where you've been hurt or you've been unsafe, where you also have been manipulated, duped, you're going to have trust issues. And trust is such a huge, huge thing that is necessary to have a healthy relationship and to be committed and feel loved and be able to manage the things that happen in relationships that are going to test how healthy and strong your connection is. So if you don't trust this person, if you don't trust them to not cheat on you, if you don't trust that they're telling you the truth, if you don't trust that they're gonna be consistent in how they show up for you, with you, when they're not with you, but keeping you in mind, you are going to be struggling, struggling, to feel safe in this relationship. It is going to suck. It's gonna be difficult. You're constantly going to be in a state of fear. That's what trust does. And when you're constantly in a state of fear on your body physiologically, that's a constant state of stress. (laughs) Meaning, again, cortisol levels. And when you have elevated cortisol levels for, An extended period of time and this happens to you regularly it's gonna wreak havoc on your health so this is where I make a book recommendation but dr. Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book called the body keeps the score and it's all about how trauma emotional trauma manifests in the body in medical issues physiological problems that there is a direct connection between our physical and our emotional and The book is incredible if you're interested, I highly recommend it. But if you have trauma and if you have enough of it, going back early enough, you are going to have physical symptoms, emotional symptoms, psychological symptoms in relationships because again, in relation to other people, when you've had trauma inflicted on you by other people, you're gonna have reminders, you're, it's gonna feel reminiscent at times. And even if it's not the same person and it's not the same situation and you have more control in this case, trauma still can come up and it's kind of unpredictable and it can kind of blindside people, can come out of left field and all of a sudden you're triggered and you're in this state where you're disconnected or it's intrusive or you're dysregulated or whatever else. So is a huge one in commitment. And the other piece that affects commitment with trauma is that safety piece. Even if you've established that this person is trustworthy, that safety piece can be triggered in so many other ways. Just because they're not lying to you or cheating on you or abusing you doesn't mean that because of your trauma that you're going to be able to still feel like you are important to them like you are completely safe with them even in other ways maybe around money or around stuff around the house or even around being considered and included in all these other ways it's going to it's going to be affected so if you have trauma of any kind big T trauma small t trauma it's going to impact your relationship and your ability to commit and also to receive another person's commitment to you. So the last one that I want to touch on as far as an internal barrier to commitment is communication skills. So people talk. I'm a talker, clearly. And what is interesting is that people often don't pay attention to how they talk. They're just not really self-aware. They're just used to kind of running their mouths. And they lack healthy communication skills. And sometimes they don't even realize that they're lacking them. So what I mean by communication skills is how people approach a topic. Especially when there's conflict or there's anxiety or there's just tension or... There's emotions involved, and they need to either handle their own or handle their partner's emotions. How do they communicate around this? So I'm gonna go on a brief rant here. There are four primary communication styles. Okay. So there's it's kind let's go back to the cookie. Remember that delicious cookie? Okay. So I spent like four hours last night making it. Uh, I made a big batch of these cookies and these cookies are super labor intensive. They require lots of expensive ingredients and, you know, they're kind of a colossal pain in the ass to make, but I took the time, I put in the effort, you know, I put some TLC in there as well and I made this ridiculously delicious batch of cookies and I bring it into work and I put it out in the break room to share with my coworkers. And I come back in later in the day and I haven't even had one of my own cookies. I just brought them in and shared them. And there's one left. And I decide to take it for myself because it's gonna be my treat at the end of the day. I've got a long work day and I haven't even got, I I haven't even been able to try one of my own cookies. And I know that they're so good. Everybody in the office is talking about them. Okay, so I have this last cookie. It's on my desk in my office my coworker comes in and leans in and puts his hand on my cookie or her hand or their hand, doesn't matter. They put their hand on my cookie and they go, oh, those cookies are so good. I've been dying for another one. Can I have this one? Okay. So four different styles. One style is passive, meaning I don't, say what i want i don't get my needs met so my response in a passive communication style be like okay yeah you can have the cookie now i'm left feeling like i'm disappointed i got my hopes up maybe i'm resentful that this person got the cookie i definitely did not speak my truth that is the passive communication style then there's passive aggressive okay i would say Fine, take my cookie. Want anything else? You want the shirt off my back? <laughs> so passive aggressive is where sarcasm comes in. It's where you're still not saying exactly what you mean or what you need, but it's coming out in this snide way. So that's passive aggressive. Then there's aggressive. Uh, get your fucking hands off my cookie. I'm still saying what I need, I don't want you taking my cookie, but I'm also being abrasive and antagonistic and I'm probably gonna make you feel kind of put off by me. Also not the best way. Then there's the fourth and healthiest communication style which is assertive communication, where I can speak my truth, but do it in a way where it's not off-putting and it's still going to get my message across. So that would look like, Actually, I was saving that cookie. It's the last one and I haven't gotten to have any, so I can't give it to you. I'm saving it for my treat at the end of the day. Notice I never said sorry. I never apologized. I simply said, this is my intention. I want this cookie. I've saved it for myself. You cannot have it. Okay, fine. Keep the cookie. Thanks for bringing them in would be the best response, but we don't always get that. So back to the commitment barriers, depending on what your communication style is, how you normally handle situations, that is also going to present challenges in your relationship and to your commitment. If you are typically really passive and you never actually ask for what you need or say what you mean, you're going to have a hard time getting your needs met. And it can also lead you to become resentful of your partner because they're not showing up for you in the way you need them to. Well, uh, newsflash, you're not telling them what you need. So that communication style can also play a part in kind of driving you away from each other. Because now I'm resentful, but I am so passive. I don't really know how to effectively ask for what I'm needing or what I'm meaning. And... Here we are, and it's this standoff, and we're just, we're two ships sailing past each other in the night. Now, if you're passive-aggressive, at some point, that can turn into um, hostility. It can turn into hurt feelings, offensive conversations, offensive behavior, now we're offending each other, now someone else is being put on the defensive, and this is like the easiest way to start a fight. You're not actually communicating what you need though. You're putting the other person on the defensive, but you're also not clearly saying, actually, this is what I need. It's, no, it's fine, fine, do whatever you want. It's kind of like the classic when you ask someone, when you see that they're clearly salty and upset and you say, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And they go, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they're still salty and they still have a sour puss, and it's so clear that they're not fine, but they won't tell you. And they probably could use some type of conversation around this, maybe even an apology or an acknowledgement or something, but they're telling you, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Essentially you're lying. It's not true. So say what you mean. Now with the aggressive form of communication, this is just downright rude. And it's also, in some ways it's also abusive. I mean, you can't talk to people like that all the time and still expect them to feel comfortable around you, want to come around you. And also I wanna touch on the fact that with the passive aggressive and the aggressive, it's defensive. You're sitting there feeling like you're being threatened or attacked or somehow someone's encroaching on something that's yours or you're not being attended to the way you need to be. And rather than actually communicating that, you're being defensive yourself. You're putting them on the outs with you, which is completely counterproductive to what you actually want, which is that connection. So, Communication skills are huge in relationships. And being assertive and communicating assertively is so difficult for people because A, there's the fear that I'm going to upset this person if I'm honest with them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to think I don't like them anymore. There's that. And if you remember my boundaries talk, if you're so worried about how the other person's going to take it, you are basically taking care of their needs instead of your own. So yours come first, by the way, PSA there, your needs come first. Um, So you're also not ever going to be able to really be clear and to be able to create a safe environment for both of you to have emotional intimacy, vulnerability, openness, connectedness, this reduction of this fear that you're going to be judged or you're going to be rejected or you're going to you're going to somehow create an explosion in your relationship that is a huge barrier for people to be assertive and being assertive doesn't mean being mean or bitchy it simply means communicating clearly say what you mean say what you need use your words you don't have to do it in you know, an attacking or blaming way, lots of I statements, but you're still being very clear with someone. And that is the healthiest thing you could do. And if they can't handle your clarity, well, that's a them issue. So I've just run down four main things, in my opinion, that are internal barriers to commitment in relationships. So it's attachment styles, self-esteem, trauma, and communication skills. So I hope this is helpful to you. Um, Maybe you ponder on this and take a look at what you tend to do in your relationships or previous relationships, how far you've come. Bravo. Feel free to leave me feedback, comments, and uh, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.